If you will, take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to today's scripture. We're going to be reading in Matthew chapter 16. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one for you. Again, that's Matthew chapter 16. <clears throat> We're going to read verses 13 through 20. Okay, let's begin. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Thank you, Natalie. We're in this series, Be Great, Be What God made you to be. Be a great person. Now, we don't mean this in the sense of being great as the world teaches us to be great. A great big ego or a great big bank account necessarily, but we mean to be great in the inner man, in the real person that connects with God and has spiritual life from heaven to live your life on earth. As a matter of fact, we're told that we believers are God's people, We're in God's family, and that family is called the church, the church. So today we want to talk about how to be a great church, a great congregation, not only individually, but as believers bound together in the power and the love of Christ. The post office workers got early to their place of work, and they were about to unlock the doors when they noticed a box right by the door and uh, someone had left it there and on it were some big letters that said TNT, TNT. Well, of course, in these days, seeing something like that is very disconcerting, problematic and possibly dangerous. So they decided not to go in and to get away from the box. So they called the police department. And the police department got the SWAT team out. SWAT team came and looked at it and saw the letters TNT, saw the box, and they decided they better find out if there was a bomb inside it. So they brought out their robot. The robot did his business and discovered that there was nothing inside that box that was like a bomb. So now it was safe for the SWAT team to bring the postal workers back in. They took the box and opened it. And to their amazement, they found a box of books. 
specially ordered books. And right on the very front of the book, on the cover, was embossed three letters. T-N-T, the New Testament. That's what it was. The New Testament. Now in the New Testament, where Natalie read a moment ago, we are told what makes a dynamic church. What makes a great church. There really is no other church other than the New Testament church. People create cults and movements, false messiahs and leaders, false prophets, as Jesus said there would be, constantly. And yet, if a church is going to be a church, it must be a New Testament church. And to be a great church, we must be what kind of a church? TNT, the New Testament church. That's what our message is about today. TNT church. Say it with me. TNT church. TNT church. That's what we want to be. The New Testament church. The powerful church, the power of God resting upon the people of God. This is what God expects. And this is what God provides for us to be. A powerful, great church following after Christ. And in Matthew chapter 16, you find some of the great teachings of the Bible about what a great church is like. So, Let's dig into this passage this morning. There are certain parts of it that are very controversial. And even to this very day. Let's see what we can learn from history and from the Word. First of all, let me explain something. When you looked on your life notes this morning, you saw all those many words. Do you not? You see them all there? I want to just put your mind at ease. I'm not planning to take those words one by one and give you a total history what all those words mean. But I want to tell you something exciting. When I was doing my study about the TNT, TNT, I found biblical passages, biblical truths that really illustrate every single one of those words. Every one of those words describes uh, what the church is. I mean, they are powerful words. A lot of them. As you see, I'm not going to take the time to read them. I don't have the time. But I'm going to illustrate some of them this morning. And uh, we're going to see what God says. In all probability, this is part one of a part two message. So we'll go as far as we can today. Just want to let you know that to put your mind at ease so you'll understand what we're going to do this morning. So let's get into the passage in Mark chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Now, this is a very defining moment for Jesus. Because all this time he'd been speaking to his apostles and disciples, and yet he did not know yet if they had really gotten the message. He didn't really know if they knew who he really was. He didn't have a confidence in them that they understood the whole time you've been spending teaching, leading, praying with them, in equipping them, and empowering them. And now, after all this time, 
he had brought them to the region there, Caesarea Philippi. Now this is a very interesting place where Jesus brought these men to uh, teach them about what it means to be the church. This place that he stopped, Caesarea Philippi, it was surrounded by all kinds of pagan secular religions. Very much like the church today is surrounded by pagan or secularistic religions and cults. For example, right nearby him, not too far from him, were 14 or 15 temples of Baal. Not only that, not too far away was a huge temple erected to the emperors of Rome, Augustus Caesar. In addition to that, it was the birthplace of the great god in mythology called Pan, the god of nature, the god of all things. It was taught and told. In addition to that, it was close to the center of the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith, the Old Testament. So right there in the middle of that, Caesar worship, Pan worship, Baal worship, the Jewish history, the Jewish people, Right there, at that place, at that moment, Jesus stopped to talk to his apostles to find out what they really knew, what they really believed, if they really had any convictions, and if he had been wasting his time with them. This was a defining moment for him, and it was a defining moment for them, and it was a defining moment for the church as well. There's a lot of drama in this. This whole scene is just dripping with drama. What's going to happen? What's going to be said? What's going to be done? What's going to be the outcome of this? So into this dramatic picture, Christ asked this question, as you saw in your scripture. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? Now that term, Son of Man, that's the term Christ used to identify with people. Son of God, Son of Man. Son of God, Deity, Son of Man, Humanity. Who do they say the Son of Man, the one who's come to you in the flesh, here and now, right now, right here, who do they say the Son of Man is? So what did the apostles answer? According to this passage, they said, some, of, some people say you're John the Baptist. Herod actually thought that John the Baptist had come back to life in the person of Jesus. That's what he thought. They said, others say you're Elijah, and others say you're Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. When they said this to Jesus, it was a tremendous compliment. Because Elijah was considered one of the greats of the greatest. The most powerful prophets of the Old Testament. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Like Jesus, he had tremendous compassion for the people. Jesus wept more than once for the people he was speaking to, Jewish and Gentile. So they complimented him about what the people were saying. But now, defining moment, the drama gets intense and Jesus says, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? That's still the central issue and question today. 
Because God brings Christ to people through the Holy Spirit and through believers and through the Word. And God asks every being, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say the Son of God, Son of Man, Savior of Man as described in the Bible is to you? Do you understand who He is? Do you get the message of Christianity and what that means to you in your eternity? And so the first one to answer, as always, was whom? Simon Peter, the big fisherman. He was always jumping first. And in this case, he said something truly, truly significant and exciting uh, about who Jesus Christ is. In fact, it's worth reading. I'm reading verse 16. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Simon Peter got it. He finally grasped what Christ had wanted him to know. And any person who grasped this great truth that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that's where God wants you to be. That's who God wants you to be. That's where your pathway to greatness under God's leadership begins. When you agree with God Himself that God's Son that He sent is your Savior, your Lord, the one who came for you, and you believe Him, you trust Him, you receive Him, you accept Him, and your life is changed, and you start walking on that pathway to being a great person, the Son of the living God. Now for me... My journey started really in a bar in Atlanta called Harry's. I was not a drinker, never have been, but I went to that bar that day in Atlanta because two of my buddies from Columbus, where I grew up, came to visit me. They were drinkers. They wanted to spend a few hours in Atlanta, and I was there, their friend. So we went into this bar, and I looked down on the table, and right there, on the table were the words, God is dead. Not a living God, a dead God. This was right in the midst of the whole God is dead movement that started in Atlanta, Georgia with a professor at Emory University, Altizer was his name. When I got up, I was thinking, wait, 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 wait a minute. God is dead? There's no God? And that pricked my thoughts, my mind, My understanding to find out whether God was alive or not. My next journey was to leave Atlanta and come down to West Palm Beach. My goal at that time, my dream, was to get to Dodger Town to be a baseball player. And I had an excellent camp, uh, pre-camp, but I got injured. And at the same time, I heard about Christ in a very unusual way that I don't have time to tell you about now. But as a result of that, I went down the street after getting this unusual connection with God in a very unusual way. I went down the street to the Baptist church and I heard uh, the pastor, Dr. Moody, preaching about Jesus. So I was learning there in that church that God's not dead after all. That God is alive. He has a living son. He sent the living Holy Spirit. And over the weeks and the months that went by, this conviction grew in my heart and mind until the day I accepted Christ for certain, confirmed my salvation in Christ, and God started me on a new path 
to serve him. So for Simon Peter, he took that journey like you and I do. He had to get to that place where he confessed Christ. He confirmed Christ. He received him and Christ was so joyful to hear that Simon Peter got the message. And you'll notice the reply of Jesus in verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. So the Bible tells us that in order to become a Christian, you and I, or any person, must be willing to be taught by heaven. You have to be willing to be a receiver of the truth from heaven. Many people aren't, never will be. They'll never be saved. They'll be eternally lost. Because before a man or woman can accept Christ, they have to open their mind enough for God's truth to get into their hearts and souls and become a Christian by faith to trust Christ and believe the word that God has said. And that was true for Simon. He was definitely a Christian. He understood who Christ was, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus went on to say to him some very powerful, powerful words about being the church. Verse 18, after telling him that his Father in heaven had revealed to Simon Peter who Jesus was, he said, and I tell you, he said, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the Bible says, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's a very powerful passage of Scripture, one that every church needs to know. And every church ought to have a clear idea of who the foundation of the church is. By the way, that's the banner you and I ought to be waving over our life and our church, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Um, Not too long ago, uh, Bobby and I were at a tennis match down in Delray. And uh, we were sitting up in the, somewhere up high, and we were watching them play tennis And right behind us were about eight people from Argentina. And they were there for Juan Juan Martin Del Potro, great tennis player. 6'5", great player, a champion. But these people behind me from Argentina were there to cheer him on. They were sitting right behind us. And they had this huge banner, huge. And I couldn't read a word of it, but I know they were cheering for uh, Del Potro. And they were shouting. They weren't shy. They were shouting. They were standing. They were waving. They were talking to each other. And then all of a sudden, one of them said to me, would you take our picture? So I got up and I took their picture. A few minutes later, the picture didn't turn out right, so they said, would you take another picture? So I took another picture. But here's my point. They were in Delray, Del Potro was playing an American. There were plenty of Americans there, and there were a lot of Argentinians. And there was a contest going on on the court, and they had their banner there, and they were pulling for their man. The banner over us ought to be Jesus. 
That's our banner. That's who we're pulling for. That's who we love. That's who we are in the army of. That's who we're living for. That's who we want the world to know. Jesus is the Savior of man, the Son of God. He's alive and He's well. That's a banner. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be quiet when you get an opportunity to speak. I don't mean to go around spouting off all the time. I mean use your opportunities. So Jesus was telling them and teaching Simon Peter that he was going to carry the banner. Simon, you're going to be carrying the banner of Christianity. And you're going to be the main guy, at least for now, in the beginning of this to do the work. So when he said to Simon Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What does that mean? On this rock I will build my church. Was the church built on Simon Peter? Or was the, uh, the, the church built on Jesus Christ? Well, here's the reason study comes in very importantly here. In this passage in the New Testament, there's a play on words. A play on words. For example, when Jesus said, you are Peter, the word there was Petros. Petros. Which means a little stone. Not a gallstone, not a kidney stone, but a little human stone. You are Petros, a little stone. And it actually means a stone that can be moved, rolled around, and manipulated. Now listen to me and watch me. And then Jesus said, and on this Petra, play on words, Petros, Petra, or Petros and Petra, this boulder, this huge mass, this huge foundation, Christ referring to himself using the demonstrative pronoun, on this rock, me, I, will build my church. His church, Jesus' church, was different than anything that had come before. Anything in the Old Testament. Anything in the cults. Anything in the world of Pan. Anything in the world of emperor worship. Anything in the worship of Baal. Totally different. Greater. Eternal. And so he said right away, you're a little rock. Later, Simon Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 said, you know what I learned? That all of us, speaking to other believers, all of us are like spiritual stones that God is using to build His church and Christ is the foundation. Now it is said in the Bible that the foundation of our church is the apostles, all of them, which simply means that their message of the gospel was the teaching foundation of the church. In fact, we're told also that Jesus is the foundation and the cornerstone. Have you ever heard that term? Cornerstone? Have you ever seen a church that was built in a certain year, and you go over to the corner, and there's a plaque there, right? A, A metal plaque or some type of special construction. And what does that plaque do? It joins two corners. That's what Jesus does. He joined the Jews and the Gentiles into His church. All people of all races, Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles includes anybody and everybody who's not Jewish. At that cornerstone, Christ began the church. He is both the foundation 
and the cornerstone, and he allows the apostles, all of them, not just Simon Peter, to also build on that foundation using the teaching of the gospel. And that's what Simon Peter did as time went by. He said, I will build my church. And Christ is still building that church today. Christ is still building that church. That's the reason, for example, that from A.D. 33, we'll just use that number, since the timing of calendars has been a little confused in past times. In A.D. 33, the cornerstone was laid for the church, the birth of the church. Today, there are more than 2 billion Christians on planet Earth, greater and larger than any other, quote, religion in all of the world. In the apostolic age, the age of the original apostles and Apostle Paul, in that age, from A.D. 30 to A.D. 100, the number of Christians increased by 40% in the world. 40% increase. And that was in spite of persecution. Ten Roman emperors persecuted and killed Christians. But in spite of that, the church grew by 40%. And that church is still growing today. And the one reason that it still grows, according to the latest statistics on church growth, is the Christian church is what is called a missional church. What does that mean? It means that the church has a mission and it's evangelistic. It goes out with the message. It gives out the message by any and every means possible to let people know. So in the church today, by the way, there's what's called the local church, that's us, and the global church, that's the Christians around the world who are in the church. The local church makes up the global church. The global church is going strong, and yet there are more non-Christians than there are Christians. But still the church is growing. And then there's what's called the universal church, and the visible church, and the invisible church. Now I know that sounds a little confusing. Let me just jump in here real quick. The invisible church... That's the church that only God can see. It's really made up of all the real Christians. Then there's the visible church. That's actually the people around the world who are in some kind of church. They may or may not be real Christians. They're visible to us, but we don't know their hearts or minds. God knows them, and He knows who is and who isn't a real Christian in the church. So the church is God's, it's Christ, and only Christ, God, knows who the real ones are. So there's a visible church, all of those who are some kind of membership or something. Then there's the invisible that only God can see. So he said, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. And that's the reason we have church. We have church because Christ is building it. Now, I know one of the things that happens sometimes, people say, uh, well, I don't need church. I can go out on the golf course, or I can go fishing, or I can go watch my grass grow, and I can uh, get real spiritual somehow or another. Uh, Hartwell Daly, who was a writer in a Christian magazine, was getting a haircut one day, and uh, 
he was saying to the barber, you know, I ought to invent a do-it-yourself haircutting kit. That way I won't have to come to the barber shop all the time and pay you. He knew the barber real well, so he's kidding around with him. I'll invent a do-it-yourself barber kit. Now the barber knew that the man he was cutting his hair, whose hair he was cutting was a Christian. So he shot right back at him. Yeah, well, maybe I'll make a do-it-yourself religious kit. And so this writer, uh, Hartwell Daly, began to think about that. And he started using it as an idea for an article he was uh, going to write about uh, how some people think they can have a do-it-yourself religious kit in a do-it-yourself church. So here's how he described it. Number one, he said, In the kit, if we were to invent one for a do-it-yourself church, you'll need one portable lightweight seat shaped like a pew. And uh, it can be set up anywhere you want it. But it only seats one. Then he said, you need also one small paper-covered hymnal or songbook containing one well-known, or one dozen well-known songs, words, and music. That's all you need. Just a few songs. He said, then you'll need one harmonica. And you're going to play it and sing at the same time. It'll be hard, but you've got to accompany yourself. So you sing, and you play, and you sing the hymn that you want to play. Then he said, you'll need one abbreviated New Testament, very abbreviated, with just a few verses in it, so you can choose those verses over and over. Then he said, you're going to need in this kit, we're going to prepare for you, one small offering plate. It's held in the left hand, and you put your quarter in with the right hand. You've given your offering for the day. And then, there's only one sermon, and it's entitled, and it's abbreviated, What a Good Boy Am I. And uh, you're going to feel real good about yourself when it's all over. And this is a part of do-it-yourself worship kit, do-it-yourself church. Now, believe it or not, (laughs) there are millions of people who have this kind of idea in their head. But Jesus said, The real church is the one that I'm building and I'm the foundation. And let's go back now to see what he said because we haven't gotten to the most controversial part yet. Are you ready for it? It's probably one you've been anticipating. You're Peter and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Those gates, what's that all about? Well, gates were a picture of power and strength. The gates of Hades, not just any gates, the gates of Hades. This is not hell, the gates of hell. That's a different word. This is the gates of Hades. Hades is described in the Bible as the place where the departed dead go. Dead people's spirits go. So what was Jesus saying? I'll build my church on this rock and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Well, he was simply pointing to his own resurrection. Yeah, they're going to crucify me. They're going to put me on that cross. But I'm telling you that the church will be built because I'm going to live. I'm going to be resurrected. And the gates of the dead cannot stop me, cannot stop my church, cannot stop my gospel, and cannot stop anything I'm doing. And it will become alive to those who believe it and accept it. Cannot be overcome. It actually literally means that it's indestructible. Indestructible. 
cannot be defeated. Now then he goes on to say to Simon Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now that's a kind of a puzzling statement there. What does that mean? These keys of the kingdom. Well, keys can mean many things. And I see my time is running out very quickly, but I want to make this important point. The keys are very important. Keys represent, first of all, authority. Authority. Secondly, in the Bible, keys represent knowledge. Jesus told a bunch of, quote, theologue heads that they were twisting theology. And he said, you have stolen the key of knowledge from the people. You've perverted and inverted the gospel of God. And you've taken the key and you've locked them out. And they can't get the truth they need. And that's the reason Christ came and chose his apostles and gave them authority to give the gospel out wherever they went. But the real meaning here is the meaning of the key of stewardship. In the Old Testament, Eliakim was a a steward of the house, and he was given a key. That key could unlock every room in the house and could unlock every room in the house. When Jesus referred to the keys... He meant authority, he meant knowledge, and primarily he was saying to Simon Peter and the apostles from other passages we know of, I'm giving you the keys of stewardship for you to unlock the doors of God's kingdom for the Jew and the Gentile to come in. And they sure enough, as they used to say in Georgia where I grew up, they sure enough unlocked those doors. Because on the day of Pentecost, what happened? Simon Peter got up, he took the key, he unlocked the door of salvation and the gospel, and he preached, and we're told that 3,000 people were saved and baptized. He unlocked the door. And then on the other hand, when he preached, he made it clear what a person should do to receive Christ. And if they would not confess and believe and accept and receive, the door was locked to them, just like it is today. The door of heaven is locked to anyone who will not believe. It's unlocked to anyone who will believe. Now you know there's a tremendous difference between the Catholic interpretation of this and the Protestant. Uh, Those many in the Catholic faith believe that Simon Peter was the first pope. Of course, there's nothing in the scripture that says that whatsoever. Nor does it teach succession that Peter chose someone to succeed him, who succeeded him, who succeeded him. We're told that God chose His apostles, the original ones, and God calls pastors, teachers, evangelists into His kingdom work as He sees fit. It's not put into human hands. By the way, this is the reason that Jesus is the foundation of the church, not Simon Peter. Now listen to me. Simon Peter was so flaky sometimes. In fact, it's going to shock you to read in this very same chapter, just a few minutes later, now hear me, Simon Peter was turned on by Jesus. Jesus turned to him and said, get you behind me, Satan. He said that to Simon Peter. Why? Well, you go read it. I don't have time to tell you. You go read it. Simon Peter was fickle. He became stronger as the time went by and he even died a martyr's death. A strong, strong man. 
But the church is not built on any human being. It's built on the foundation of Christ. He says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is the story of the gospel of Christ. Christ makes this possible. This is why a great church is a gospel church. A great church is one in which the fellowship is built on those who have received Christ as their Lord, believe in Him as their Savior, and are ambassadors for Him, living for Him and working for Him, and serving the church to be the great church God wants us to be. So what is our banner? Our banner is Jesus is alive. God is alive. What is our banner? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. What is our banner? Depend on God. Believe in God. Trust God. And have the gift of eternal life and serve Him on planet earth as well. Jesus is the one who overcame. He's the one who makes it possible. And that's the reason we say, come to church with us. Come and hear about Christ. I'm going to conclude my message right now, so heads up. Shelly and I were at Applebee's yesterday for lunch. And this couple came in, senior adult couple, and they were very lively. Uh, you ever have this happen when you're in a restaurant, you've already been served your food, and you're sitting there, so they came in, they walked right past our table, and they're going to sit right beside us over here. And so they just kind of did the pause and looked at what we were eating. You know, they were checking out our menu dish. They wanted to find out, and I could tell he was very interested in what I was eating. I had this big, delicious, classic plate of all kind of stuff. I could see why he was interested. So he sat down. He was a very outgoing guy, kind of loud even. He and his wife, they were very friendly. We started talking a little bit. So when we finished up, he had already, by the way, he talked to me about what I was eating, and I told him what dish it was. But when I got up, and uh, I had to move over to my left and slide between the two tables, and walk between the two tables, I said to him, See you in church tomorrow. What? He said, yeah, 8.30. I said, no, 10 o'clock. He said, St. Thomas More. I said, no, Gateway Community Church, gateway to a great way of life. Church. That's our banner. That's us. We are church. The church of Christ. Dear God, thank you for letting us be in your church. Called, saved, changed, empowered by you to be our best. Lord, help us to be great. Help us to be a great church. The kind of church you're proud of. You empower us to be through your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And we thank God for His Word today. And may it take root in our hearts. You can put your Bible aside now and take your gateway guide, if you will, please. Natalie's